Several weeks ago when our teaching team began to work through this text in preparation for this message, I got curious, and so I asked everybody a question. I said, have any of you all at any point in your journey with Jesus ever had a season of significant doubt about yourself, about whether you were really saved? There were eight of us in the room that day. Five said, yeah, there have been seasons where I, where I really doubted whether or not I was genuinely saved, that I really had salvation. And I got curious and so I began to try to see if there was any commonality. Is there, is there anything that these people are, are saying or about their experience that would lead me to be able to pinpoint what really caused that? I suspected when I got started that I was going to hear that a lot of people came to faith in Christ when they were very young and they just were a little cloudy on the event and it caused them doubt. That's not what I found out. What I found out was that at some point in their journey with Jesus, those who doubted really began to lose sight of the truth that salvation comes to us on the basis of faith in the finished work of Jesus alone. Now, it's not that they stopped believing that. Every one of them, during their seasons of doubt, could have passed a theological test and given the correct answer to uh, what brings us salvation, they would have said faith in the finished work of Jesus alone. They would have passed it. But functionally and practically in their lives, they began to lose sight of that truth. Now, here's why I really know that. Not just because I surveyed them, but because I was one of the five. I was one of the doubters. You see, I came to faith in Jesus Christ on Easter Sunday, 1978. I was 11, almost 12 years old. I was in the sixth grade. I had been wrestling with getting saved, of surrendering my life to Jesus for some time. I had, I had begun to feel the, the move of the Holy Spirit in my life that led me to say, you know, Derek, it's got to be more than just what your parents believe, and it's more than just going to church. You've got to make a surrender of your life to Jesus as Savior. So I'd been wrestling with that for a while, and Easter Sunday morning, uh, the sermon, I can't remember what it was, it just really began to push on me hard. And that afternoon, I was super miserable. And then that night, we went back to church. We were in a revival service. Preacher had come in from out of town, and we were going to have lots of church services together. And that night, during the offertory prayer, I just realized I am not saved. I am not born again. And as soon as we said amen to the offertory prayer, I turned to my mom and I said, I need to get saved tonight. So after the sermon, I went forward, went to my pastor, Ron Rice, uh, who has been with Jesus now five years ago this week, uh, told him I needed to, to be saved, that I was coming to be saved. He handed me off to a guy that my mom actually worked with named Terry Wolf. We went to the musty fellowship hall of First Baptist Church, Tahlequah, Oklahoma, and he talked to me about why I'd come forward, and I shared, and he gave me some guidance going forward and just kind of took some information, and then the next night I was baptized. And the one thing he didn't do was pray with me. You know, we, we're all used to it. We've been in, a, in, in churches like ours long enough to know that when it comes time to 
give your life to Christ, that usually someone leads you in a prayer where you out loud say some things in a certain kind of way to ask Jesus in your heart, which is language, by the way, that does not exist in the Bible, but you ask, you know, you ask Jesus in your heart. Um, he didn't do that with me. And the reason that really became a real problem was because there was a, a preacher in Oklahoma who was rising to national prominence at this time, whose uh, exegetically unsound sermon led people to really strongly question whether they had ever given their lives to Jesus. And then the solution that he offered at the end of this sermon was to pray a prayer. So if you say the simple words of this prayer, then you will be genuinely saved. And as I heard that, I realized, well, you know, Terry, good guy, didn't didn't lead me in prayer. And man, I was, I was under the conviction of the Spirit and I went forward and, and I meant what I was doing and I was you know, really embracing Jesus as Lord and Savior. But man, I, I, didn't, I didn't pray that prayer. And so all the way through middle school, you know, every time a preacher would come from out of town to preach, I would just grip that pew and think, man, I don't know. I don't know if I'm saved. And then I'd go to church camp. And you know, the whole point of church camp, it seemed like when I was growing up, was to scare kids to death so that they'd come forward and get baptized when they went back. And I wouldn't go forward, but man, I would grip that, I'd grip that pew and I'd think, man, I just, I just don't know. And it continued all the way for me in, into, my, into my college years. I mean, I lived with a season of significant doubt. At this stage of my life, here's what I've, I've come to see. I, I've come to see that exegetically unsound sermon caused people who were genuinely saved to suddenly doubt that they were, and then because the solution was simply saying these magic words, it has caused people who are clearly not saved by the evidence of their life to have a false confidence that they are because they did the thing. You know, they said, they said the magic words. They, they said the, the pretty prayer. And so how do we unravel that knot? Because it's a problem, folks. I'm telling you, it's a problem even in churches like ours. I mean, those of us who are on staff, elders, will tell you that we get questions all the time from people who are just wondering, am I really genuinely saved? This is, how do we unravel the knot? How do, we, how do we get past all of that, see clearly what Scripture says? Well, we're going to lean into Paul, as we are doing, as we go through the book of Romans, to try to get to a point where we understand clearly what we are being called to in which to place our confidence for salvation. Now, Paul has been arguing since the beginning of Romans chapter 4 that the only proper understanding of salvation is putting our faith in God alone. Specifically, and he, he's alluded to this, he's not really underscored it, he'll do that today, but specifically in the finished work of Jesus. So he's, he's talked about that through the first several verses of, of Romans 4, and then he simply restates his point again in Romans 4.13, where he says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. You see, he's been using Abraham, 
the father of the Jewish faith, as evidence that God did not suddenly give a new plan for salvation once we got to Jesus, that the basis of being right with God all along has been trusting in God and God alone to deliver what he promises. So he's been using Abraham as that example, and he's just coming back, stating his main point again. Now he's going to make two observations that are really important here. I want you to look at verse 14. Having just said... Remember, I believe Abraham was made right with God on the basis of his faith. First observation, for if it had been adherents of the law who are to be the heirs of faith, heirs, faith is null, and the promise is void. So what he's doing here is saying, you know, the basis of the Jewish religion is this promise given to Abraham. If doing enough of the right things, if obeying the law is the basis of receiving that promise, faith has no place. But he also says the promise is void because that would then not be the fulfilling of a promise. It would just be giving you what you are owed. So the first observation is is that if it is any other means of salvation, if there's any other means of salvation but faith, it means that the entire foundation of the Jewish religion which many of his readers were arguing must be followed in order to be saved, the very foundation of the Jewish religion is null and void because it rests in a promise. Here's a second observation. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. What's he saying? He's saying, you who believe that you must obey the law and believe in what God has said about Jesus to be saved have a fundamental misunderstanding of what the law can do, what the Old Testament law can do. You see, the only thing that the Old Testament law can do is damn you before God. It, it brings the wrath of God. And then he makes this curious statement, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. It almost sounds, doesn't it? It almost sounds like he is saying, you know, if God had just kept his mouth shut and not given us the Old Testament law and all of those rules and rituals, nobody would be a sinner. That'd be, that's kind of what that sounds like on first glance. That's not what he's saying. He is using a very specific word in his language. He's not using the word sin. He's using a word that is translated appropriately in English as transgression. So what's the difference between sin and transgression? Think of transgression this way. Let's say I'm driving down the road at 100 miles an hour. And I come through a particular stretch of road where the speed limit has dropped to 35. The government knows that the speed limit for this particular stretch of road is 35 miles an hour, but I don't, and the reason I don't is because it's not posted anywhere. So while I may be violating what the government has said that speed limit is because it's never been revealed to me what it is, I just blow right through it. I may be breaking the law. I don't know that I'm breaking the law. I don't know specifically how I'm breaking the law. But if they had posted in in a big sign up ahead, the speed limit is 35 miles an hour, and I thought, you know, I like going 100 and just blew right on through it, then I've become a transgressor. See, transgression is knowing what is required and then choosing to disobey anyway. So what Paul is saying here by way of observation is the law can do nothing but damn us before God because it invites the wrath of God. The very best the law can do is show you specifically how you've sinned. It can identify 
and name your sin. That's the best that it can do because remember, Pastor John, Jonathan told us while I was on sabbatical last fall, I got that wonderful section of Romans where over and over and over again, you heard you were sinners under the wrath of God. He did a great job. Everybody loved that section of Romans. Remember, Paul has already said everybody sinned. So it doesn't matter whether you have the law or not. The only thing the law does is tell you how you sin, specifically what the sin was. It cannot redeem you before God. So he then says in verse 16, that's why it depends on faith. That's why you can't trust in the law to save you. That's the reason that you can't do enough of the right kinds of things to save you. It all has to depend on faith in order that the promise of salvation rest in grace, not you and I doing enough of the right things, and be guaranteed, he says, to all his offsprings, not just to the adherent of the law. Now, have to pull out just a second. Remember in his audience that he's writing to, there are people who are believers from a Jewish background, and then there are people who are believers from a Gentile background. The believers from the Jewish background are those who continue to adhere to the law. And they are saying, if these Gentiles don't adhere to the law, they're not really saved. But he says that the promise of grace, of salvation by grace through faith, is guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring, those who come from a Jewish background, and also those who share in the faith of Abraham, who he says is the father of us all, which is a point he has made earlier in Romans chapter 4, that everybody who surrenders themselves and trusts in Jesus and Jesus alone to save you are, are the, the children of Abraham because like he exercised absolute faith and trust in God to deliver on his promise, we are exercising absolute faith and trust in God to deliver on his promise to save us. Now, it's, I think, helpful to see that what happens between verses 17 and uh, verse 19 is parenthetical. So it might be helpful to you to just, if you're comfortable writing in your Bible, to put parentheses that open at verse 17 and close at the end of verse 18. Here's what he says, because he's getting ready to explain why Abraham's faith means that if we exercise faith, we are his children. It's not just an ethnic thing. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He speaks this to Abraham. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he, Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As had been told him, so shall your offspring be. So, again, he's just reminding us of something he said earlier in Romans 4, that we are all children of Abraham who, who put our trust in God, exercise faith in the promises of God. Then he opens back up his general argument in verse 19. He did not weaken in the faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. He's reminding his readers that when Abraham got his real confirmation from God that God was going to bless him, kind of a reconfirmation that God was going to bless him with offspring, he was ancient. He was a senior, senior, senior adult, and so was Sarah. They were not the kind of people that you would look at and think, well, maybe... You know, that could happen? No, not at all. 
That couldn't happen at all. And so he knew that. Abraham knew that. And so he put all of his hope, all of his faith, all of his trust. If this is going to happen, it's going to be God doing it and not me. He goes on to say in verse 19, No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. You may have an older version of the English Standard Version, and it reads distrust there. Newer versions of the English Standard Version are going to say unbelief. It's because the editors decided unbelief was a, a better way of communicating the word here. So no distrust or unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. It doesn't mean that he didn't doubt it. We know that there were kind of seasons where he kind of tried to take matters into his own hands. But bottom line, the general trajectory of his life, he continued to trust God and in fact grew strong in his faith. And actually what Paul is meaning to communicate there is that his faith made him stronger. In other words, as he continued to exercise faith and believe in the promises of God, that faith got stronger and stronger and stronger. And as a result, he was able to give glory to God. He was able to say, the reason that this wonderful thing has happened to me is because God and God alone has done it. And then he says that he was fully convinced that God would be able to do what he promised. That is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. He was only trusting in God. So, honestly, he's just reviewing what he's already said in Romans chapter 4. But the one thing he has not absolutely said explicitly is that our faith for salvation must be in the finished work of Jesus. So in other words, his readers could be saying, okay, I get that, that Abraham put his, his faith in God to bring about the promise that God had given him that he would make him a great nation, and that's why he was made right with God. But God hadn't made that kind of promise to me. And so how am I made right with God? In what am I to put my faith in order to be made right with God? And this is what he's getting ready to explain. He says, the words it was counted to him were not for his sake alone, but also for ours. How so? It will be counted to us. In other, ways, in other words, the object of our faith will be by believing in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, and raised up for our justification. So he says, no, you have not been given a promise that you're going to be a great nation, and so you put your faith in God in that. What you've been given the promise of is salvation through the finished work of Jesus. And if you put your faith in that alone, trusting in nothing else, then God will bring to you the salvation that he has promised. And remember, Romans 1 through 3, you're such a sinner... You're under such condemnation before God that you have nothing really to offer God for your salvation. You're in hopeless situations. You, spiritually, are as good as dead. There's nothing that you can offer to God. But if you trust what he's promised us in Jesus Christ, put all of your faith there, you will be saved, underscoring the main point of Romans 4, that salvation comes to us by faith in Jesus alone. Now, there are three kind of broad principles that emerge really from all of Romans 4, but specifically our text today. I want to share them with you, and then I want to share with you illustrations from my life that will help maybe drive those observations, principles home. Here's the first. Confidence in salvation comes from faith, not works. 
It's the first thing. Confidence in salvation comes from faith, not works. Second thing. Confidence comes from faith, not circumstances. Remember, there was nothing about Abraham's earthly circumstance that would lead him to believe it was possible for him to experience what God was promising he would experience. So faith comes from, or confidence comes from faith, not circumstance. Last thing, confidence comes from faith in Jesus Christ. So confidence comes from faith, not works. Confidence comes from faith, not circumstances. Confidence comes from faith in Jesus Christ. So let's talk about each one of those. As I shared with you, I came to faith, had a moment of surrender to Jesus on March of 26, 1978, and believed that God saved me in that moment. But this whole prayer thing crept in, and I began to have these experiences in middle school and high school with guest preachers and at camp where I would be told I needed to remember this particular prayer and I couldn't and man so what I would do I just say that prayer every time I got a chance every time I got a chance now I wouldn't let anybody else know about it because I was still just kind of uncertain about the whole thing but man anytime a preacher asked me to pray a prayer I prayed that prayer and you know what my confidence did after praying each time nothing I was no more confident I was just as conflicted I mean, my confidence, I, I, I thought maybe I wasn't sincere in the words. Maybe I didn't say it just right. Maybe I did it because I, there was nothing about that prayer that gave me any kind of confidence at all. But I kept trying to pursue it. Maybe the next time I will do it or say it right. It reached a crescendo in my early years at Oklahoma Baptist University. I went the fall of my freshman year, fall of 1984, with some friends uh, to hear a music group at the church that this famous Oklahoma pastor pastored. And so I went with my friend Jeff, the name of that music group, Truth. Who here is old enough to know who Truth is? Oh, I saw there was like this. I don't want to admit I'm that old. (laughs) Truth, we went to see Truth. And we're sitting five or six rows back, and so this preacher got up at the end and began to call people to salvation. I'll never forget what he said. It, it, a terrible thing to say, but he said it. He said, I sure wouldn't want anybody to get out there in that traffic going home without knowing that they know that they know. And you can know that you know that you know if you'll say this, this prayer that I'm about to say. And I just remember thinking, man, I hope Jeff's a good driver <laughs> because I don't know, man. I just don't know. I'd said the prayer over and over and over again and had no confidence. Why? Because confidence comes from faith in the finished work of Jesus, not a work. Even if that work is a a good, holy-sounding thing like a prayer. Next, faith or confidence comes from faith, not circumstances. When I was 16 years old at church camp, I believed with all of my heart and have never really doubted since that God called me to preach. Now, I want you to 
See how weird that is. I wasn't all that certain I was saved at 16. Absolutely certain and have never doubted that God called me to preach. That should just show you the, just the jacked up mess your life can become in really silly ways if you stray from what Scripture says about faith in Jesus alone. So I, I believed that God was calling me to preach. I've never doubted that God had called me to preach and to pastor a church, although the last two years I thought, really? Did I hear it right in six? I don't know. But, but no, seriously, I've really never doubted it. But if I were being honest with you, there may have been a part of me that thought, you know, that should stack things in my favor. I'm, I mean, preachers are saved, right? So it was, it was a way of cultivating my life circumstances to build up my resume and maybe prop up my confidence, my confidence that I was saved. I did it by being called to preach. Some people do it by getting really active in church and, and maybe signing up for everything that comes along, but they still wrestle with that doubt. Why? Because you cannot develop confidence by cultivating your circumstances. You can only develop confidence in salvation by faith in the finished work of Jesus alone, which brings us to the third observation. Confidence comes by faith in Jesus Christ, which is what he ends with in Romans 4. So I'm at Oklahoma Baptist University. I was a broadcast journalism major, which should explain all kinds of weirdness about me to, to you all if you don't know that. I was a broadcast journalism major, but I was a religion minor because, I, again, I knew I'd been called to preach. And so I was taking a class to fulfill my uh, requirements for my minor, um, and that class was Baptist history. And we had to write a research paper, really the first time I'd ever really had to write a true research paper. Uh, I mean, it, it was ten, I remember it had to be 10 pages, and you're thinking, oh, my word, 10 pages. And, you know, my preface of my doctorate's, you know, 20. So anyway... But it was a really big deal. And so I had to pick out a subject. And I picked out the subject, the rise of second, third, and fourth baptisms in Baptist life. I wanted to know why that was happening. But you know why I wanted to know, right? I wanted to know if it was because there were people who genuinely weren't saved. And maybe I was one of those. And maybe I needed to profess faith in Christ. So it was to fulfill a requirement. But it was really to try to get some relief. It was an awful paper. Awful. I, I didn't know that much red ink existed in the world. In fact, it's so red and so awful, I've still got it in my office. It's 35 years ago. I've got it in a little bin in my office. But I remember doing the research for that and the reading for that, and part of it was just looking at testimonies that were on record from, from people. And Baptists used to be really good about having uh, newspapers where they would publish every week with religious news about Baptists in that neck of the woods. And I was reading a testimony of salvation that was in one of those Baptist newspapers. And this person said, you know, I, I believed I had an experience with Jesus when I was about the age I was when I had the experience with Jesus. But I, I, would, I struggled with doubt, and so, you know, I, I would say the prayer over and over again. I'd say, that's me. And I tried to cultivate the circumstances of my life to stack things in my favor. I, they weren't called to preach, but I thought, well, that's me. They're telling my story. 
They're telling my story. And they just kind of reached a crescendo with it where they said they'd done all of these things, things that I had done. They hadn't had any relief, just like I hadn't had any relief. And they reached a point where they just cried out to God where they said, I don't know what else I can do. To which they heard as clearly as they could possibly hear God say anything to them, that's the entire point. In order for you to receive salvation from me, you have to come to a point where you recognize there's literally nothing you can do. I had that experience in the Geiger Center of Oklahoma Baptist University. I was reading that article, which is the student center. If it hadn't been reconfigured 50 times in the last 35 years, I could walk you to right where it took place. And I read that, and I read them saying, it was as Jesus said to them, that's the entire point, you can do nothing, that a weight came off of me that has never returned. Because practically, functionally, I realized there's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can add to my resume that will give me salvation. Salvation comes through the finished work of Jesus. I am not justified by a prayer I prayed. I am not sanctified by the works I do. I am justified and sanctified before God because of what Jesus did, period. And I believe that in churches like ours, there are people who have never doubted and I'd say to you, God bless. But if your general population is anything like our teaching team, the majority of you have gone through seasons of significant doubt, and you may be doubting now. Now, part of the reason you may be doubting is you just let your faith grow cold. I mean, you're just kind of punching the clock and going through the motions, and you're not really pursuing an active relationship with Jesus Christ. And so that disconnect makes you feel a distance that maybe makes you wonder whether or not you're saved. And you're really saved. You just need to get your act together and start pursuing this Jesus who gave you life and draw your life from him. But there are others who are genuinely saved, who are pursuing a relationship with Jesus Christ, who are deepening themselves in his word and in his life and in prayer to him, who find yourself over and over and over again gripped with debilitating doubt because you have put a plus after Jesus. And I don't know what that plus is. It may be a prayer. It may be, you know, a, a certain kind of sin that you don't do anymore, that you don't struggle with anymore. I don't, but you put a plus on the back end of Jesus, and, and none of the things that you can point to that you've done to try to fix that have helped. And the reason is, is because you just got to functionally, you've got the answer in your head. You've got to functionally get back to the point where you recognize there's nothing that I can do that hasn't been done by Jesus, and I just have to put my faith in that. But I also believe that there are probably people here who have so deeply trusted in the idea that you've done something to save you that you aren't genuinely saved. I, I can't tell you how many times Jonathan couldn't, John couldn't, our elders couldn't, how many times people have come to us with zero evidence of the life of Christ flourishing in them, with no 
no history at all of any kind of upward trajectory towards, towards Christ-likeness in their life who will say without a doubt, I'm saved. And I'll say, why? And they'll say, because I did the thing. And I always want to say, I do say, uh, that's misplaced confidence. That is a misplaced confidence. You're trusting in a thing and you're not trusting in Jesus. And if you're trusting in Jesus, Jesus would be showing up in your life a lot more than what he is. So, so we do need to, all of us, very practically deal with what we're trusting in. If we're trusting in the finished work of Jesus, if we are moving away from what do I have to do and instead to, to focusing on what he's done, then we're going to have a growing confidence that sets us free to flourish and grow in his life and share that life with others. But if we're trusting in anything else, we're going to be gripped with doubt or we're going to have a false confidence in what it means to be saved that will lead us to the shock of our eternal life one of these days. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. The only person, thing, that can make us right with God is Jesus Christ and our full, complete faith in his finished work.